Welcome back to Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker. I know it's been a while, but I took a hiatus with my first kid being born, so cut me some slack. But we're back with big news. Uh, I finally got a co-host. My friend at the firm here, Luke Benke, out of the Milwaukee office, is joining me as co-host of the show going forward. Luke, welcome to the show. Why don't you uh, explain who you are and tell us about yourself? Hey, thanks for the introduction, Jack. I'm really looking forward to co-hosting the Litigation Nation podcast with you. Uh, I serve as outside general counsel to my clients, which means that I coordinate legal needs across a variety of different disciplines. And a big part of that is litigation, from business disputes to product liability matters, to professional liability matters, to your simple insurance coverage lawsuits, slip and fall, uh, auto accident cases. It's a wide ranging practice, but I tell you, I enjoy all the different things I get to do day to day for my corporate and insurance clients. And I think with that, we can go ahead and and get right into it. Uh, For the first time in a couple of weeks now, I'll just go ahead and start with today's stories. First, uh, musicians with legal trouble are increasingly having their song lyrics used against them by federal prosecutors. This is kind of a fun one. After that, trouble in the courts for President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. And Luke, what do you got? German auto supplier Bosch agreed to pay $25 million to settle California's probe into the company's role in the diesel emission scandals at Volkswagen and Fiat Chrysler. And evidently, even Harvard makes mistakes. Harvard University must pay its own defense costs in the ongoing legal challenges to its affirmative action program after losing a battle uh, with its insurance carrier over its failure to timely notify it uh, of the lawsuit. All of that and more, here's what you need to know. All right, our first story back after this long break. It's about the indictment of two rappers, Young Thug and Gunner, specifically the circumstances of their indictment and charges. Both are currently behind bars in Atlanta on gang-related charges after prosecutors used their own lyrics as evidence in the indictment. Both have been denied bail and are awaiting trial, according to the Wall Street Journal article that I'm relying on for the story. So Young Thug and Gunna were indicted for racketeering charges, and the indictment cites lyrics in social media posts and alleges members of the rapper's YSL collective, which is really a street gang, were engaged in murder, armed robbery, drug dealing, etc. And quoting from the piece, quote, Jeff DeSantis, a spokesman for Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, who's overseeing the case, said, the only time we've used lyrics in any indictment is as it related to specific crimes in the indictment. If you decide to admit your crimes over a beat, I'm going to use it, Miss Willis said in an August press conference. I have some legal advice, she said. Don't confess to crimes on rap lyrics if you don't want them used or at least get out of my county, unquote. So this strategy of using rap lyrics as a confession is being criticized by industry groups and other artists. According to the New York Times, Warner Music Group, the record label, headed up a big coalition of music industry groups and individuals, including... Sony Music, Universal, the concert company Live Nation, and then also Spotify and TikTok, as well as Drake and uh, Coldplay, interestingly, signed a letter, an open letter to the New York Times and to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which urges prosecutors and state regulators to limit the use of lyrics in court as evidence. Now, their argument seems to be that the lyrics aren't really, you know, quote-unquote statements or autobiographical in such a way that would make them admissible as a party statement. Quoting from later in the piece, 
quote, music executives argue that by treating rap lyrics as de facto confessions or pure autobiography, prosecutors misunderstand how art works. In many cases, the legal strategy plays, especially for jurors and judges unfamiliar with rap, on stereotypes of criminality among black people, interjecting implicit racial bias into proceedings, according to Eric Nelson, professor in liberal arts at the University of Richmond and co-author of the book Rap on Trial, Race, Lyrics, and Guilt in America. Mr. Nielsen says he has counted roughly 500 instances of rap lyrics being used as evidence in 2017. But he says that's almost certainly an underestimate since his data is based on available information from a small percentage of cases that actually went to trial. Meanwhile, non-rap lyrics have been used as evidence only a handful of times, he said, unquote. So I guess how have these efforts gone? Well, in September of 2022, the state of California passed a law requiring courts to evaluate whether lyrics are risk of being more prejudicial to a jury than probative. New Jersey and New York are considering more restrictive laws that would create rebuttable presumptions of inadmissibility of lyrics that prosecutors would somehow have to overcome to introduce them as evidence. And I see both sides of this one, frankly. I understand that artists, when they're writing songs, shouldn't be assumed to be speaking literally. I mean, after all, I don't remember anyone investigating the man in Reno that Johnny Cash shot just to watch him die, for example. I mean, Cash sang that song from inside a prison once, and no one took it literally. Uh, however, I guess on the flip side, I think whatever arguments you might have against using song lyrics as admissions are probably equally applicable to statements on social media. And as a litigator in my own practice, and Luke, you can tell me if you agree, we use social media statements all the time against witnesses. Right. I mean, there are two separate questions, right? Whether evidence itself is admissible and then whether a jury or a decision maker will find it persuasive. On the admissibility side, I don't think there's any question it's admissible unless you can show there's some sort of prejudice. But, you know, how much value that piece of evidence is assigned is something entirely different. Yeah, I think there's probably going to be an argument about whether the, uh, you know, whether in this case, um, the author, or in this case, the rapper, is playing a character when they wrote and performed uh, the lyrics, um, which, you know, is to say, like, I, I didn't say this, the character Young Thug said this, right? And those are different things. Um, I'd be interested to see, yeah, I'd be interested with, like, the pretrial motions and, and stuff on that arc. Yeah, absolutely. I don't see it as any different than, um, you know, a written witness statement, for example, following an auto accident. Uh, now, it may be that these lyrics are, are done in such a way that they're uh, entertainment, uh, but that's what cross-examination is for. And so if that statement or admission, uh, you know, is, is under the guise of, um, you know, entertainment, then that's something that can be brought out on cross-examination and thrown before a jury. But at the end of the day, uh, that's something that you that you said uh, that's admissible evidence. I tend to think so. I think context is probably going to matter a lot. I, I think you know it's the old law school example of um, you know someone says uh, I, you know I am the Queen of England. Um, that's not admissible for purposes of proving that that person is the Queen of England. That's admissible for purposes of proving that person is insane. Um, I think that that's going to be you know I don't know how useful these things are going to be you know unless. Uh, a lyric or a post is, like I said, literally, hey, you know, last week at five o'clock, I committed a crime at said location and, and said time. 
Um, I, I don't know how useful it's going to be in that regard. But I, I agree. I mean, I don't see why it'd be inadmissible um, under any other context. On the other hand, I think you should be able to lie or embellish or joke around or tell fake stories uh, online. And I generally see the value of allowing for people to freely play around with ideas and concepts so long as nobody gets hurt openly. And with all the talk about censorship lately with like, for example, the Musk acquisition of Twitter, which we've talked about in the past, um, turning artistic expression into admissions against the declarant could, I think if widespread enough, maybe impose a form of self-censorship on artists. It could lead to a lot of boring, predictable, and I would call safe art, whether that's in the form of rap lyrics or fiction books. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how this, uh, especially with the new laws in New Jersey and California, seeking to prevent this, um, what kind of rulings you get there. All right, on to the next one. Next, uh, according to a Reuters report, German auto supplier Bosch agreed to pay $25 million to settle California's probe into the company's role in the diesel emission scandals at Volkswagen and Fiat Chrysler. A little background on the diesel emission scandals. In 2015, Volkswagen admitted to using illegal software to cheat U.S. pollution tests, pleaded guilty as part of a $4.3 billion settlement reached with the Justice Department that overall cost the German automaker more than $30 billion in fines, penalties, and vehicle buyback costs. For its part, Fiat Chrysler pleaded guilty to criminal conspiracy and agreed to pay $300 million to resolve a Justice Department diesel emissions fraud investigation. This is after previously paying a $311 million civil penalty and $183 million in compensation to more than 63,000 people as part of a class action diesel lawsuit. So where does Bosch come in? Diesel car owners suing Bosch, claiming the company helped uh, design the secret defeat device software that allowed car makers to evade emissions rules and alleged that Bosch was a knowing and active participant in the decade-long scheme to cheat pollution tests. Now, according to Reuters Legal, California Attorney General Rob Bantha said, open quote, Bosch's actions facilitated one of the biggest environmental crimes of our time. And today, they are paying the price close quote. Bosch confirmed the settlement, but of course denies any liability. Bosch previously agreed to pay more than $400 million to U.S. diesel, Volkswagen, and Fiat Chrysler owners and resolve claims from state attorneys general over diesel emissions. What makes this particular settlement interesting is that under the proposed agreement, Bosch must disclose to the state of California if it concludes that a manufacturer will use or has used software to evade emissions rules. Doesn't Bosch know that snitches get stitches? <laughs> so, Jack, two things about this story. Number one, uh, the California Attorney General's quote about this being one of the biggest environmental crimes of our time. You think that's overblowing it a little bit? And the other thing, what about this uh, settlement term uh, that requires Bosch to essentially tattle on its clients? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> Is it one of the biggest environmental crimes of all time? I don't know. I, I don't know how you'd measure that, maybe by like cubic units of CO2 emissions, or I don't know if it is, you know, in, in terms of dollars, the thing that jumps out to me there would have been the uh, Chevron verdict in the uh, Ecuadorian case that got Steven Donziger arrested and everything, which we covered in a prior episode. Um, but 
I mean, I think it probably the biggest environmental crime of all time is probably we don't know about it yet. So I don't know. This might, you know, I don't, we wouldn't know either way. Um, the set, that settlement provision, though, that was requiring Bosch to report to snitch on its own clients, I think is interesting because, I mean, wouldn't that then open Bosch up to further liability from its own customers um, for, you know, I guess, exposing its clients to potential regulatory actions? Well, no question. And on top of that, I mean, how do you contract with your manufacturer? I mean, there's all sorts of IP issues, confidentiality issues, um, you know, breach of a fiduciary duty, uh, a whole whole smorgasbord of things sort of comes to mind. How do you how do you contract with a manufacturer now if you're Bosch um, and saying, look, if we think that you're doing something wrong uh, in terms of evading these emission standards, we are required to report you. Yeah. And I mean, if you're in California, why would you do business with Bosch? Correct. Uh, you know, if, if you're going to, hey, we want to buy a product from you, um, but it comes with this implicit risk that we're going to report you to the state for buying our product. Um, I, I mean, as a consumer, I mean, wouldn't you be like, uh, no, I'm going to look elsewhere? Yeah, that's 100 percent right. I don't know if Bosch, uh, you know, given its size, you know, what what it has in terms of, you know, competitors. But uh, yeah, if I'm choosing between a company that has to report me uh, to the feds and one that doesn't, you know, guess which one I'm going with. Right. I mean, and, and this is assuming these people aren't, you know, waking up and deciding I'd like to commit a crime today. Um, that's not what they're trying to do. I'm sure that they're just, they're, you know, if, if whatever this product is, this software allows them to score better on their emissions tests. I mean, I'm sure they're thinking, oh, well, great, I'll use it. You know, it's not like I'm trying to cheat these tests. I'm sure that most of these people don't realize that that's even what's happening. It's just the product is allowing them to score better on their emissions test. So it sounds good to them. Um, yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what happens. Up next, this is kind of a quick one, but it, this is really just a fun one for me because I like this kind of thing. There's an interesting dissent from Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch that I want to hit on briefly. And the Supreme Court recently declined to review Arizona's use of eight-person juries in criminal trials after criminal defendant named Raman Korami uh, appealed the issue, calling in the, into question the Williams versus Florida case from the 70s that allowed Florida to hold felony trials to only six jurors. And according to a Law 360 report I'm reading from, SCOTUS declined to take the case on review, and the challenge was specifically that the eight-person criminal jury in that case was unconstitutional. But Justice Gorsuch filed a spicy dissent. He pointed out that the use of a 12-person criminal jury was a 400-year-old tradition under English common law, and that the draft of the, of the Constitution would have considered the need for a 12-person jury so obvious and well-established by tradition and history that they didn't even need to specify for it in the document. And apparently, the Williams decision of the 70s was based in some part on research that supported the idea that six-person groups deliberate the same way as 12-person groups, an idea of which has been called into question since and which newer research controverts explicitly. Now, Gorsuch argued that the practice of using six-person juries violates the Fifth Amendment jury trial requirements, in part because a six-person jury is not really big enough to encapsulate a variety of viewpoints and perspectives. Anyways, I just like when the justices are diving into centuries-old English tomes for precedent. I know that's where it comes from, obviously, but it's nice to be reminded of certain things. People figured them out centuries ago, and there's just some wisdom in those types of traditions. 
All right, for my last story, uh, Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness program was struck down by a federal court in Texas this week. The political action group Job Creators Network Foundation, which is a long name, Job Creators Network Foundation, okay, filed a suit on behalf of two borrowers who do not qualify for the debt relief. Judge Mark Pittman, who's a recent appointee, wrote, the program is thus an unconstitutional exercise of Congress's legislative power and must be vacated, and later wrote, Quote, in this country, we are not ruled by an all-powerful executive with a pen and a phone, unquote, in a ruling that I'm sure he wasn't hoping the media outlets would pick up. As a refresher on this, the Biden justification for the debt relief was actually a post-9-11 bill called the HEROES Act, which was passed in 2003. Um, and it was originally passed to provide relief to people who couldn't pay on their student debts as a result of various fallouts and secondary aspects of 9-11, and then also the war in Iraq, if I my memory serves. Um, the Biden administration has kind of stretched that law and its secretary of education has interpreted it to apply to any scenario where is, there is a quote unquote national emergency. So the national emergency that was justification for the student debt relief in this case was, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the Washington Post reports that about 26 million people have already applied for debt forgiveness thus far, but as a result of the challenge, applications are closed as of today, November 11th, when I'm recording the show. I've got to say that's a bit curious timing with the midterm elections having just been this past Tuesday. In any event, there's been a few lawsuits now that have addressed this, mixed bags on the rulings. Some are finding that there's no standing. Some are taking the opposite position. So while the Supreme Court hasn't moved yet, there are two separate issues that it could take up, the question of standing of the plaintiffs and the delegation of legislative power via to the executive via the executive order. Look, I know that's kind of a, a lot to download and digest, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the standing issue. Typically, there's no such thing as, you know, quote unquote, taxpayer standing, right? You know, a taxpayer can't sue the government because it doesn't like how its tax money is being spent. In this case, it's not quite that. It's different borrowers who are being either excluded or Otherwise, they're having different tax liabilities because of the debt relief. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on what do you think the Supreme Court is going to do with this type of challenge? Yeah, I think what the Supreme Court is going to do is defer to um, is defer to uh, these rulemaking bodies. So IRS or whoever, you know, is overseeing those tax issues. Um, I mean, isn't that your sense, Jack? I don't know. I mean, we covered in an episode not long ago, um, recent rulings regarding uh, IRS rulemaking, which is, which the Supreme Court has you know substantially uh, rolled back in certain cases. So it seems like there is sort of a shift towards rolling back the administrative state um, and their ability to promulgate rules without explicit congressional guidance. Um, and I think in a situation like this, I mean, you could see similar thinking being applied. I don't know. Do you think that sort of, uh, I mean, is that politically motivated or is that grounded in, um, you know, <laughs> is that grounded in a solid legal basis? Well, it depends on whether you think the Supreme Court is political or not. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, and, you know, your mileage may vary on that. I mean, I know, and you probably had a similar experience as me, I, you know, going through law school, right? I mean, the taking administrative law, I mean, that stuff is drilled into your head that, um, you know, courts are supposed to defer to these rulemaking bodies as opposed to, um, you know, tell them what they ought to do, of course, because they are, these rulemaking bodies are the experts. Um, so, 
the fact that uh, the Supreme Court has uh, felt comfortable, you know, sort of peeling away some of that authority, I think is really interesting. And, and obviously it's going to be um, something that we need to keep an eye on here. I'm sure that we're going to be covering this going forward. Next up, for those of you who find insurance coverage issues fascinating, oh, just me, a federal judge ruled that Harvard waited too long to demand that Zurich cover up to $15 million of its expenses from defending its race-conscious admissions policies in a high-profile case now before the U.S. Supreme Court. Harvard sought coverage from its primary insurer soon after a lawsuit was filed in 2014, which alleged that its adoption of race-conscious admissions policies helped Black and Hispanic applicants discriminate against Asian Americans. In the lawsuit Zurich filed last year, Harvard said the costs of defending the student group's challenge and the related government investigation had already exceeded the $25 million policy limit, which had a $2.5 million deductible. Harvard said that defense costs exceeding those limits should have been covered by its secondary insurer, which was Zurich, but Zurich refused saying the policy required Harvard to give notice of a claim no later than January 30th of 2016, yet the university waited until May 23rd, 2017 to do so. Now, on the one hand, I get it. This is a black and white issue. Harvard has an obligation to provide notice in full compliance with the terms of its policy. On the other, I think it necessarily calls into question the purpose of notice altogether. Presumably, that's to guarantee that the carrier is aware of the suit. And indeed, Harvard's lawyers in this case uh, said that Zurich surely knew about the high-profile case and technical noncompliance with the notice requirement shouldn't provide Zurich with an escape hatch. However you come down on that, it represents a stark reminder for policyholders. In claims made and reported policies, deadlines clearly matter. Policyholders must timely notify their carriers within the deadlines provided. Reliance on concepts such as constructive notice maybe won't be enough. Certainly, you rely on that at your own peril. Um, whatever the case may be, uh, we know that even Harvard makes mistakes. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of you know what should Harvard have done, I mean, it's, it's obvious the, the answer to that question is it should have timely given notice within the terms is set forth in its policy. Like that's, that's the right answer to this question. Now, whether that is, whether notice, quote unquote notice for, for purposes of that policy can be in the form of, you know, constructive notice, like the fact that this thing was in the news for months and was in front of the Supreme Court, like you mentioned, you know, did, did the excess carrier have constructive notice? Probably, frankly. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I'm not licensed in Massachusetts, obviously, but I would say that they have an argument for uh, having put their carrier on constructive notice or that they knew or should have known of the, that this case was coming down the pipeline. So I, I don't know what the ruling is going to be, frankly. But I, I, to the extent that um, if anyone's listening out there and wants to learn anything from this, it is uh, read your policy and make sure that you're giving your your uh, your carrier notice or else you know, you could have potentially been wasting all that money you're paying for premiums. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, that's the show. Like I said, we're back. Uh, happy to be here. For those of you that are returning after my long time away, uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate your patience. Like I said, I was on hiatus after um, my, uh, my first kid was born. 
And uh, for those of you that are new, welcome. Uh, and you're here for the best part because the show is now uh, dual hosted. So we have Luke Banky, who's going to be with us going forward. We're playing with the format a bit. Uh, the show is going to be bi-weekly, but you, know, you have two hosts now, so you only need half as many episodes. And uh, beyond that, Luke, thank you for joining me. This is going to be great. Um, for those of you that are listening, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Excited to ride sidecar with you, Jack. <laughs>